thank you all for being here on such a kind of hot, humid day. I also understand it's the Men's World Cup or something, so thank you for being here rather than um, watching a football match. Um, okay, so I'm going to try as much as I can in the 20 minutes or so I've got to talk about the history of the lack of equal pay um, from about the 1880s till about the 1980s. Um, and I think I want to sort of make three overarching points um, as I go through uh, the presentation. Um, and the first is really about the value that's traditionally been attached to women's work. Um, throughout this period, and arguably perhaps still today, we can sort of debate this point later, women's work has been undervalued traditionally um, because it is women's work, because it is work done by women, therefore it is seen as less valuable, easier, something that is somehow less important. Women, for a whole variety of reasons, have been seen as temporary, um, secondary workers, um, workers somehow who are less committed to doing paid work. And men are very much seen as the default workers, the ones who really belong and, oh, we might have some women as well, but they'll be doing quite separate jobs. Um, I want to think about also the willingness of trade unions at various points to fight for equal pay in amongst, of course, the vast range of other issues they are also fighting for. And the resistance of government, employers and organisations in actually enacting change and actually seeing the value um, in doing that. Um, so, before 1914, um, we have in the textile industry, and this is pretty much the only industry um, that pays the so-called rate for the job. So men and women are paid the same amount for doing a particular job, and it's the same job. And notice the language about rate for the job, because that becomes, I think, very significant later, the kind of words you use to discuss equal pay, the way you couch it, I think, is quite important. And from 1888, the Trades Union Congress adopted officially, or theoretically at least, um, a, a policy on equal pay. But we do need, I think, to consider the wider context of trade unionism, because whilst the Trade Union Congress did enact this policy of equal pay on paper, many trade unions at this point were not friendly to women. This is by by no means the case for every single one of them, but by and large, they were not particularly welcoming. They saw women as interlopers. They saw women as devaluing their work, as accepting lower wages, etc. And many unions actually forbade women to be members or um, didn't allow women to have full membership. So there's a whole other context here, whereas where theoretically um, the TUC has signed up to a policy of equal pay, many individual trade unions who form part of the TUC actually haven't and don't really want women working in their trades full stop. Before 1914, though, there are growing debates in um, growing debates about equal pay in public employment. And the reason for this is actually twofold. One, um, public employment, uh, particularly things like the post office, like departments in the civil service, the London County Council, various county councils around the UK, um, women in those types of um, organizations often do the same or very similar work to men. There are exceptions to this, of course, and there are ways in which these organizations try to assert that women aren't really doing the same work, but it manifestly very much is the same work. Um, women teachers also very manifestly doing the same kind of work as male teachers. 
Um, so that's one reason that we have these huge bodies of women who are actually demonstrably doing the same or very, very similar work to men. And the other reason why there are growing equal pay debates in public employment is because effectively the government is the employer. Um, even for local authorities, it's the government sort of devolved to the local authority if you're employing teachers, for example. So it is felt by um, women and men in these unions that you could actually make a case for equal pay um, given the fact that you're appealing to the government, who's the employer, and you've got these men and women who are uh, demonstrably doing um, the same work. Um, and it's hoped that if you can secure this concession from the government, then you could actually then push it for private employment. The government would be setting the example, and then private employers would follow along with this. Now, of course, this logic relies on the government being willing to set the example. And actually, what we see for a lot of the 20th century is the government via the Treasury, um, which is sort of effectively controls the civil service, saying, no, we're not going to do this precisely because it will set this precedent for private employers, and we don't want to put that pressure on them. So right with this argument about the government is the employer and could set an example, we have the stalemate and the kind of unwillingness to budge um, right there. We also have examples of um, officials in the post office. There are other departments where this is true as well, but there's a prominent one in uh, the post office in 1910, where it was found that men and women were doing exactly the same work, but were doing it in different rooms. Rather than the um, post office saying, oh, whoops, sorry, the women should be paid the same as the men, they moved the women onto different work. So that they're no longer doing the same work. So there's no longer a case for equal pay. And there are a number of examples of this. Um, we have the issue also being discussed in Parliament. Um, the post office comes a lot, up a lot in this period because it's the civil service department that employs the largest number of women. Um, women's civil service work is expanding, but the post office is um, the most has the has the largest number of women. And so here we have um, a government minister actually. Um, in fact, he wouldn't be a government minister in 1910, but we have an MP, sorry, um, in 1910, um, talking about the fact that um, men and women in the post office and in other departments of the civil service are doing the same work and um, they're not being compensated for it equally with men. What I find interesting, of course, is that he's doing this as part of the parliamentary franchise brackets women bill. And there's this kind of notion, perhaps, that if we give women the vote or if women had had the vote already, we wouldn't be discussing equal pay. We wouldn't need to be discussing equal pay. Um, that, of course, remained quite a vain hope because it, even when women did get the vote, that wasn't enough to give them equal pay either. Um, I think the First World War is quite popularly seen as a moment where women start to make inroads on getting equal pay, and they don't really. Um, so on the one hand, whilst the Defence of the Realm Act argued that um, women had to be employed, if, if women were being employed on men's jobs, they had to be employed um, on the same types of contracts and they had to be paid the same wage so as to secure wages. What you also had and what allowed employers to get round this regulation were the practices of dilution and substitution. And that's effectively either uh, breaking a so-called man's job down into several parts so you wouldn't have to pay a male wage or um, getting women to do slightly different jobs to the ones that men were doing but that somehow 
incorporated across various of the jobs, the work that men used to do. So you could actually say, you know, men are not doing the same, or women are not doing this, the same jobs as men were doing. There were a number of specific local victories. Um, one uh, quite prominent for women bus and tramway workers who got equal war bonus with men. They didn't get equal pay, they got equal war bonus. War bonus was effectively paid by employers um, via the government to counteract inflation. And women quite rightly argued um, things aren't cheaper for women just because we're women. You know, we have the same increase in the cost of living and we're on lower wages than men. So there are a few very specific victories, but what you actually have is the government and various other employers being very, very aware of setting precedents. And if they do this in wartime, then the precedent's there and it's going to be very, very difficult in peacetime to um, do anything different. At the end of the First World War, there were a whole range of committees that consider women's employment both in the civil service and outside in various different ways. Um, the War Cabinet Committee on Women in Industry, their majority report actually says that when women are doing the same kinds of work as men in the civil service and elsewhere, they should be paid the same wage, but that doesn't actually go anywhere. We do have one kind of interesting and actually very dubious victory um, from 1919 or 1920, uh, men and women in certain grades in the civil service are given the same starting pay and the same increments um, for the first sort of couple of years. And then men's salary goes up massively, women's sort of tails off, it does increase, but at nowhere near the same rate as men's. And the justification for this is, well, women aren't going to be in the service for that, for that long anyway. I'll come back to some of that in a moment. Um, and secondly, men are going to have, obviously, going to have families to support. So they need the higher wages. And so this actually just reinforced the idea of a male breadwinner model, the idea that men are always supporting families, women are never supporting any other dependents, and women don't need to earn the same as men for those reasons. So it's a very, very sort of dubious victory and actually then sets a precedent that becomes very, very hard to remove. In the interwar years, um, it's quite difficult to generalize about all unions very quickly, but generally speaking, the pattern of um, union engagement, particularly in public service employment with um, the equal pay issue is ambivalence. So you have a number of women-only unions who, not surprisingly, are very pro-equal pay, and it's one of their main campaigning planks. Um, other unions quite often have equal pay policies on paper, but you see time and again when push comes to shove, when they're trying to extract various concessions from, employ from employers, it is always equal pay that they say, we can't push for this now, or maybe we'll just push for a little increase for women, we're not going to push for full equality. Um, unions kind of have a almost sort of um, very split perspective on this um, in this period because they understand the theoretical importance of equal pay and there are all these kinds of fears about women undercutting men if women are more cheap to employ then they in theory become the more desirable employers so there's this recognition of that on the one hand and lots of discussion about sort of blacklegging and um, women blacklegging to use the kind of interwar term women um, replacing men in the workforce because they're willing to work for cheaper wages. And then at the same time, 
unions continue to argue that men are always breadwinners, therefore they need more of an income than women. And these two positions aren't compatible. You either, you, you can't possibly sustain both of these. And so unions actually go from one to the other throughout this period, the mixed sex but male-dominated, always very male-dominated unions, go from one position to the other. So under, this fear of undercutting men on the one hand and the persistent belief that um, men have to earn more because they're always breadwinners. Um, the pin money argument, pin money is a very old term, but it sort of comes up, it's this idea that women don't actually need the money they earn to survive. They're being supported by their parents or other family members. They just need a bit of pocket money. They don't actually need serious wages for serious work. So unions are very much sort of falling between these two um, positions. There is, of course, a lot of activism, particularly amongst um, women's organizations so the women the federation of women's civil servants the national union of women teachers among the two most prominent but also various other um interwar women's organizations like the um six point group like the uh the ones that the straight cheese led the name will come back to me in a moment, um, but various other women's organisations in this period who are arguing for equal pay and will do all that they, they can really to sort of flag up the issue so there are demonstrations, there are public meetings, or you have very high-profile speakers talking about equal pay and women's other issues in the civil service and in teaching. Um, these women's organizations tend to use the idea of justice and equality and you can't claim that men and women are equal if they're paid um, different wages for the same work. So there's very much an overt claim for equality on um, justice and justice or indeed feminist um, grounds. Um, there's also an argument used by a number of campaigners, including the women's organizations, um, that um, equal pay will protect men's jobs. So it's kind of sort of saying you know, if you're worried about undercutting, then let's support equal pay because it will protect men's jobs. Um, there are a number of other coalitions and organizations formed in the interwar years. So the Civil Service Equal Pay Committee um, is made up of a number of uh, representatives from uh, trade unions across the civil service. Um, and they make some headway. And really, I think what happens in the interwar years is that the issue is constantly on the agenda. Again, we have certain of the civil service unions who aren't quite willing to push as far as some of the others would like them to in order to make the case for equal pay. Um, but we have a real kind of airing of the issues. Um, and so what are the arguments used against equal pay um, at this point? And I very much want you to see this entire list in inverted commas. It's not actually, none of this is actually true, but this is very much all in um, air quotes. There are several parliamentary debates on equal pay in the civil service in this period, and that is really thanks to all of the organizations, not just the women's organizations, but all of the organizations that press for this as an issue. Um, and so things like women's apparent inefficiency and lesser skills are named, women's greater sick leave. They use really, really dodgy data for the greater sick leave. They're not comparing like with like. Um, the idea that women leave when they marry, yes, they do, because the civil service has a marriage bar. That is the reason women are leaving. And 
at no point does any official in the civil service turn around and say, oh yes, yeah, you're, you're right, we, there's a marriage bar, we're kind of making this one worse ourselves. Um, there's also very interesting data that emerges about the number of women who are supporting family members. That might be siblings, that might be older parents, that actually might be um, children that they have, then they've been widowed and they've returned to work. But there's hu hu really interesting data on um, how women are actually supporting families and really sort of breaks down this idea of you just have one male breadwinner and then everybody's fine. Of course, in the context of the 1930s, the government's very concerned about money and how it's perceived um, in terms of its spending and its budgeting, etc. So um, it sort of continually comes up with figures about why we can't do equal pay just yet. What I do argue, though, is that at this point, it, it's really at this point that the moral argument for equal pay is won. So all of these points are refuted, and there's a huge amount of support for um, equal pay for women in the civil service and very prominent press coverage, um, etc. And after this period, after the late 1930s, you don't see these reasons aired publicly. I'm not for a minute suggesting that all of these um, sort of ideas and all of this discrimination disappears because of course it doesn't but it becomes unpalatable to use these arguments because partly because they've been debunked so thoroughly. Um, the Second World War, of course, um, I think often seen as sort of the cultural, one of the cultural effects of the Second World War is often, you know, seen as women taking on men's jobs. And it does provide a kind of forum, again, to think about equal pay. Um, what is also significant um, is during the Second World War, when the government initially passed the legislation about compensation for war injuries, um, women got less than men. And the government couldn't really defend that when it was pressed on it, because effectively it was saying women's bodies and women's lives are less valuable than men's lives. So that was overturned fairly quickly. But the people involved in overturning it were a, num a coalition of women's organisations, women MPs, um, women from civil service and um, teaching organisations who... Um, then became galvanized by their success on equal compensation for war injuries and reformed the Equal Pay Campaign Committee. Um, I also think there's something quite interesting that goes on with public opinion here as well. Obviously, opinion polls methodologically are always a little bit tricky, but I think what these tell us is sort of quite interesting. Um, Particularly, so this one is from October 1941, a Gallup poll, and this question is asked directly after a question about equal compensation for war industries. So it was very war injuries. So equal compensation for war injuries, and then they ask this question straight afterwards, and it's almost like you can sort of see the thinking in the responses, and by laying these two issues together, the justice for equal um, war compensation and the justice surrounding um, equal pay. The other very prominent thing that happens in the Second World War is that as part of the 1944 education bill, um, Churchill has what I can only describe as a temper tantrum about the fact that one of the clauses of the equal pay, um, sorry, the, one of the clauses of the education bill is that women teachers should have equal pay. And he actually forces a vote of confidence. This is 1944, in the middle of the Second World War, and he knows that by, vote, by forcing a vote of confidence, um, everyone is going to back down. And so the bill passes, but without equal pay for women teachers. Um, what then happens, of course, 
anybody who knows anything about sort of government policies and things that governments don't want to do, um, Churchill says that he's going to have a royal commission on equal pay, which effectively sort of kicks the issue into the dust for a good couple of years. The Royal Commission on Equal Pay wasn't empowered to make recommendations, but nonetheless it's a really, really interesting document because the tone with which it is written, the tone in which it is written, and the way it kind of discusses the issues actually lends a lot of support to the cause of equal pay without actually saying overtly that that is what it's doing. So it's a very, very interesting document. If you're looking for something that supposedly didn't make a recommendation, there are, it's, it's clearly there, just not labelled um, as such. As I've suggested, um, after the Second World War, we do have quite a bit of changing rhetoric. And really, at this point, the defence you see from the government is money. We don't have money. We can't do it now. We're going to do it. We agree with the principle, but we can't do it now. So it sort of becomes clear that sooner or later, this is going to happen for women in the civil service and then therefore women teachers, and then hopefully the idea is that this will then trickle down to women in uh, private um, employment. The TUC is actually fairly kind of equivocal about the issue at this point. It too, again, still has an equal pay policy on paper, but it's not particularly um, convinced of the wisdom of pushing for equal pay at this point and actually doesn't do a huge amount. If you look at the kind of annual conference reports from this period, equal pay is sort of mentioned as something that's kind of desirable, but they're not going to push for it. They don't think um, the time is currently right, etc. It's kind of remarkably similar to government rhetoric here as well. Um, and again, another Gallup poll from June 47, 60% um, of people approve of paying women the same wages as men for the same work, and then they ask the 60% if um, it should be done now or postponed until the country's finances improve. To me, that's rather a leading question, but nonetheless, the answers, I think, are still quite interesting. Um, Equal pay, particularly for women civil servants and women teachers, is getting a huge amount of publicity um, at, um, in this period, and the Equal Pay Campaign Committee and various of the organisations remain very active. Um, Jill Cravey is paid to make a film to be a woman, which comes out in 51, and kind of makes a case for women having equal pay and also actually equal opportunity. Um, various other tactics, such as the Valentine's greeting, um, to the Chancellor in 1953. The context of this is that the Labour government, uh, sorry, the Labour Party actually says in the early 50s that if it is elected, it will give women in the civil servant, women in the civil service, equal pay. Now, Labour, of course, is in opposition and um, can sort of make this promise knowing that they might not have to deal with it. But this then makes the um, Conservative government think, oh, we have to actually try and win these women over. We have to be seen to be doing something, otherwise they all might vote Labour in the next election. So the promise of the 16th of May is the... Um, Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer is when he says, we will look into it, we'll do something about it, etc. And you can see the cartoon on the right-hand side of the slide um, that says, we know you were with us in theory, we just want you to put it into practice. This is the um, equal, pay um, equal Pay Petition um, in 1954 being rammed through number 11 um, Downing Street. And the women MPs of the Equal Pay Campaign Committee delivering the petition in 1954. So 
Um, it's a huge amount of pressure on the government, not least because Labour has said if it gets into office, it is going to introduce equal pay, which hurries up the Conservatives rather a lot. Um, and in 1955, um, the uh, sort of package for equal pay for women in the civil service is approved. Um, it has a six-year, seven-year, in fact, implementation period, so hence we have the kind of sarcasm in David Lowe's cartoon about the fact we'll finally get to 1961 and here we will have the equal pay woman standing tall and the um, observation of course it takes millions of years before they reach perfection. What this of course brings out is the question of work for equal value or work of equal value that I think has becomes much more prominent in the debate. Um, later on. So the equal pay for women in the civil service and women teachers has been given to those who are on the same grades as men and doing the same work. So things, uh, so people like the women typists who are on what is nominally a women-only grade do not get equal pay because the government argues there's no one to equalise that pay with. So they get what one of my favourite ever civil service phrases, a sympathetic increase. Um, and there's a lot of kind of interesting rhetoric around how have you decided that this is a women-only grade and what do we do about it? Because there are a few men typists and you know what do we do and how do we fight all of this? And this, of course, is very much the issue that preoccupies um, a number of uh, women trade unionists and women workers, not least the Ford sewing machinist strike at Dagenham, um, those who go on strike at Dagenham. Um, as I'm sure a number of you know, um, they go on strike because their work as sewing the um, car seats together um, is graded as unskilled or less skilled than men on equivalent grades doing different work but they argue with the same amount of skill and so they're arguing essentially for their work to be recognized as equally valued and equally skilled. Um, in the end, they settle for 92% of men's wages, so not quite the full 100%, but the 92% is very much seen as a victory compared to the disparity in their pay scales um, before that. And as a result of the Dagenham strike, there's a whole kind of galvanizing and lots of questions around the issue of equal pay. Um, and so eventually in 1970, with the input of people like Barbara Castle, various other trade unionists, we have the um, passage of the Equal Pay Act. Again, I'm sure some of you are quite familiar with this and what it was intended to do versus what it actually did do. Um, the Act granted equal pay for the same or very similar work, or for work that was evaluating, evaluated at as requiring um, equivalent skill. And of course, there are interesting questions about how you actually evaluate something as having equivalent skill and what your evaluation process looks like. Um, and I'm sure you can all see the kind of potential for those kind of loopholes there. Um, Five-year implementation period, and again, it's widely discussed in the literature that this actually gave employers five years to think about how they were going to get around having to implement it. Um, 
it had to be. It, it was enforced by tribunal, which again, I think, you know, kind of makes this quite problematic because it relies on the agency of individual women or individual groups of women to actually have the emotional energy and the support, um, the means, financial and otherwise, to take something to a tribunal. So the onus is very much on the women themselves to take their case forward. And we all can think, I'm sure, of workplace scenarios or kind of the complications that one has in life generally that might prevent you from actually wanting to do that or feeling able to do that. Relies on having trade union support, all of those kinds of things. Um, and of course, it only applied to men and women who were applied by the same employer. So you, so you couldn't do sort of cross-sector comparisons or, sorry, comparisons within a sector, but across different um, employers. Um, and we have, of course, a number of um, employers who, as I've suggested, try to work out ways to get around the Act. The windscreen wiper manufacturer Trico is caught out when it moves men from night shifts to day shifts, and men are earning a lot more money than women, and they sort of have to come clean um, about it. And I think what the aftermath of the Equal Pay Act does is make it even more clear that it's not just equal pay that's the issue in the workplace holding women back, although, of course, that is massively important. It's also about the fact that the workplace is segregated um, in, ter in terms of what women do and how far they can get up into the hierarchy. So effectively, they don't have equal opportunity. And equal pay can only take you so far if you don't have equal opportunity um, to go with it. Um, as well. So there are all kinds, of course, of instances of discrimination. Um, cooks and chefs and how they're evaluated. Women tend to be cooks, men tend to be chefs, because, of course, that's the professional version of being a cook. Um, I read a great one the other day about lavatory attendants and why male lavatory attendants needed more pay than women. I can go into the details afterwards if you want, but there's a kind of really weird rationalisation as to why that should be the case. And... As a result of EEC pressure, the EEC as it was then um, um, in the mid-1980s, the government was forced to reword or rework part of the 1970 Act to better recognise equal work of equal value and so that more women would ultimately be successful in bringing these kinds of claims. So I'm going to wrap up now, um, but I just want to sort of leave you with my thoughts on what has prevented equal pay. Um, and I think there are three things sort of for the longer term and then another three sort of more recently. Um, so the first is the mixed sex unions in particular not being willing to prioritise equal pay. Um, the unwillingness of successive governments. I mean, this is the way, what makes the civil service case quite interesting um, in the sense that governments just don't want to touch it um, and... Um, Unions also know that they, they actually can't push for equal pay given the structures that they've got at various points. So there are those kinds of issues in terms of how far will you, how, how willing unions are to uh, push for it, what structures are in place to the civil service. It was actually, or the civil service made it hard, I should say, made it hard for um, unions to push for equal pay. And back to one of my original points about the persistent undervaluing of women's work. Women are seen as temporary, secondary, less important. And from all of that, a lot of these attitudes follow. Why should you do something for workers if they're seen as second-class workers, as women so often are um, throughout this period? And after 1970, not that I... Well, I suppose in some ways maybe I do see 1970 as a watershed, but um, we have... 
employers attempting to reclassify women's work, and we have a very clear, um, a, a much clearer sense, I think, of how horizontal and vertical segregation affects women's place in the workplace and how that um, combines with equal pay um, to the, um, for their disadvantage. And underlying all of this throughout this period, a persistence of stereotypes about women workers. So whilst there might be more um, protections for them in the workplace, anti-discrimination and so on, there are still these underlying stereotypes of, oh, well, she's just going to get pregnant, or women are less good at their jobs, they're less efficient, they're more emotional, all of those kinds of things, which... Um, aren't necessarily directly related to equal pay, but affect the way that women are seen in the workplace and potentially affect their likelihood of achieving equal pay. Thank you very much. Thank you.